Thanks. Thank you. It's good to be welcomed back. I've really enjoyed talking with Ethan and Betsy. All that stuff he was talking about, the great things that are happening here. Like, he's for real. He's excited. And um, it's a blessing to get to share in that. God bless you. The influence of this church, I know it's felt in this community. We feel it in Maryland. And I know it extends throughout the world. So, uh, speaking of throughout the world, I don't know. You might be watching from around the world. Wherever you're at online, welcome to you. As we all join in this experience together. I I have been welcomed. I know the heart of this church is to welcome. And so, I hope you feel that wherever you are. This might be a very familiar thing to you. Uh, It might be a very unfamiliar thing to you, and there may be some nervousness or even intimidation, but uh, peace to you and uh, welcome. I uh, actually share in some of that intimidation. Ethan kind of tipped you off, and we're going into some hard stuff. It's interesting, the last time I preached here, I've been here before, I preached on a rather obscure part of the Bible where illicit sex and prostitution were main themes of the storyline, and today we are talking about suffering and where it comes from. So I need to get a new job, I think. Um, <laughs> we are. We're trying to trying to lead us into some intimidating territory. But it it is territory that we must enter. I just know that this series is providing exactly what is needed, a safe space to really go there. Because we all wonder about stuff. We have thoughts that fill our minds and they weigh on our hearts and sometimes they settle even down deep in our guts. And I gotta be honest, that's where I feel the questions that we're talking about today. I'll just read them to you as I receive them. I think you'll understand what I mean. Why would the Lord allow me to be raised with an abusive mother? Why do innocent children have to suffer the loss of a parent? Why do wonderful, kind, and caring people have to die? Why doesn't God do anything about the evil in the world? I have no doubt that even if you didn't ask those questions, you feel the place from which they arrive. We are in the arena of pain. That's a place that nobody wants to be, but everybody has been or is currently. We've struck a nerve. <laughs> to say it that way brings it to life rather vividly. You ever had nerve pain? Damaged your nerve? Pinched your nerve? Yeah? I can remember uh, my femur bone jamming up into and out of my hip socket, breaking it, and then bruising my sciatic nerve. Thankfully, I was able to be put back together again, bones healed, muscles and sinews regaining strength, but it was the nerve pain that that endured with great intensity, burning, stinging, shooting pain down the leg and into the foot. It was arresting at times. Every time I would want to talk about this painful injury as a thing that happened weeks ago, months ago, oh, no, no, still still happening. And I I sense that same kind of of feeling behind the questions that we're asking today. The pain is not just a memory. It's still real. How long will it last? But even more than that, where did it come? Why is it here in the first place? These are questions that we all know intimately as we think about our specific uh, suffering experiences and they're questions that are lodged in the collective craw of all of us as we wonder how long and why does our world languish in the face of mega evils of holocausts and genocides and slavery and terrorism and the like. Uh, Assuming, as we do, of course, in a place like this, that all of this is unfolding under the watchful eye of a God that we call good. You might think I need to get a different job because I can't answer those questions. I do, however, believe that I can give a response. 
It, it may not be an answer, strictly speaking, but it is a Christian response to what are some very heavy and painful questions that I'm very glad have been asked. A Christian response in the sense that it bears the character of the, the Christian story of which we're a part. It is distinctly Christian, faithful to Christ. And in the sense that it could be the kind of response that would provide a Christian the ability to respond when they have to bear the unbearable or speak to the unspeakable. We can begin, I think, by saying what simply won't do for a response. I don't know if sometimes it is truly arrogance that makes us think that we do have it all figured out, or if it's a nervousness in the presence of all of these unresolved tensions and we feel the, the confusion and the anger and the despair and the depression, and so out of a desire to dispel those feelings, we just reach for anything on the bottom shelf that looks like an answer and we slap it on like a Band-Aid to whatever ails us. You know, everything happens for a reason. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Oh, it could always be worse. This is God's will for you. God is giving you this suffering so that God can give you a greater blessing. If you never had any hard times, you'd never enjoy the good times. And there might be some truth in some of those quips, but they leave so much unacknowledged. Glossing over the pain, the effect is that those supposed answers shut down the questioner. They thwart a response. A journey toward healing can't even begin. It stopped before it even gets started. You can't get to the strength, to the blessing, to the goodness that those supposed answers, those platitudes hold out to us. Pain is dismissed. Feelings just wiped away. Honesty is subverted. The, the mystery, the gravity of the suffering experience is not taken seriously. Is that the way the Bible is intended to work? <laughs> no. No, it's not. Perhaps the first piece of good news today is to understand that the Bible doesn't silence us with platitudes. That's not the essence of what the Christian story offers to us. It's interesting because I think that we're taught rightly to go to the Bible in search of answers. And certainly we will find many answers when we are going on a quest like that. But the, what's striking to me is that when it comes to the impossible questions that we're asking today, what, what you might notice is that you go, go there and you're wanting to know what does the Bible say to me in this situation. And what you find is that the Bible, well, it's speaking for you. As I have experienced pain and I've gone to the Bible in search of answers, I haven't always found answers, but I have found something else. I found my voice. My questions, our questions, are on the lips of those who wrote the Bible. We cry out in the face of an abuser. Likewise, the psalm writer, Psalm 13, how much longer, Lord, will you forget about me? How long will my enemies keep beating me down? Psalm 42, I cry, why have you forgotten me, God? Why must I wander in grief, oppressed by my enemies? It can only feel like rejection. But how can that be? You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? We shake our heads about the plight of the innocent. Job would also call God to account for that. He's one of them, barely hanging on to his own life while everything around him is stripped away. I am innocent, he says. 
I despise my life. Innocent or wicked, it's all the same to God. That's why I say he destroys the blameless and the wicked. A plague sweeps through and he laughs at the death of the innocent. It's very personal for Job. And he is not shy before God. For God attacks me with a storm, repeatedly wounds me without cause. He will not let me catch my breath, but fills me with bitter sorrows. And just as we long to know, how much longer will the evil continue? When is it coming to an end? Jeremiah demands answers for what to him and to us just seems nonsensical. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why are the evil people so happy? God, it's like you planted them. You're helping them grow. So how long is this going to last? The psalm writer wants to know, Psalm 94, how long, Lord? How long will the wicked continue to gloat? And where are you in all of this, God? Psalm 10, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? These are among the quips and quotes that emerge from the story of the Bible. And they're by no means the only ones like them. Essential to a Christian response to the questions that we're asking today is to affirm that you are not the only one asking the questions that we're asking today. The Bible and the community that it represents are taking up your cause. This is a community that stands in solidarity with you in your suffering. They feel what you feel. They ask what you ask. They feel the the full range and breadth of of human emotion and the depths of the human experience. They, They know the agonizing why, the torturous how long. Those things aren't snuffed out of the Christian story, but they are rooted right within it. It is a story big enough and wide enough to address our feelings and the complexities of our questions. It's a community strong enough and deep enough to enable us to address God honestly in our pain, to give us a voice to speak to God in the face of the unspeakable. Now you want to say to me, well, Luke, you've only introduced us to more questions. But it was precisely my introduction to these things that made me realize that the presence of questions does not eliminate the possibility of faith. Seeing the the witness, hearing the cries of faithful people who have, have suffered and lamented and been angry even in the presence of God has been a building block of my faith, even if not an answer to my questions. And here's what I know. The experience of suffering and the presence of questions has been an off ramp from faith for so many people. It's a path I've considered taking myself. And I I know this doesn't say everything. It's not uh, this way all the time. But uh, you can imagine how if you grow up in an environment where you don't have a sense that the Bible is taking up your cause and, and understands what you're feeling, but rather it is just dismissing you with a bunch of simple answers, well, then I suppose that off ramp only gets more compelling. And, and we could right now, if, if we wanted to, um, take the conversation in a more philosophical direction. And I would love to do that. And that would be a worthwhile discussion. And we could debate the obvious implication that is lurking behind all of our questions today. Well, maybe there is no God. Maybe all of our prayers for the abused and the innocent are going to an unoccupied address. And so the way that we resolve that tension between the awful things we see and the belief in a good and powerful God is just to say, well, 
there is no God. Now, we would look at that and want to examine that very carefully and consider whether that transfer of trust from God to oneself or to humanity in general, is that wise and reasonable? Or if leaving God in the dust actually leaves us in a better position to address and do something about the evil and suffering that so obviously exists. We would want to ask for directions. Where down that path would one find the moral resources to call evil by its name? In, if the natural world is all there is, then uh, what would make us think that there ought to be any less suffering in a world that develops because the strong are dominating the weak? And there are more questions that we would want to answer. Suffice it to say right now that while that's a worthwhile pursuit, uh, understand that you might take that off-ramp to lay claim to answers, but don't be surprised if you find a new set of questions and tensions and even platitudes that require significant faith to accept. As much as I love a conversation about all of those things, what I can't seem to, to take my eyes off as I stand at this crossroads is the, the collective witness of the Christian story. It, it is, among other things, a peculiar thing to me. For it is a story full of suffering, full of suffering people. And it's never clear, actually, on exactly why evil exists or its precise origins. But it does always talk about evil as if it is absurd, as if it makes no sense, as if it does not belong in the world and something needs to be done about it, and that Something is being done about it, and that it has no place in the world that God is bringing about. The, the biblical story from creation to new creation is one of a good world where evil doesn't have a sensible, explainable place within the system. No, it, it is an intrusion, a temporary one, but it has intruded on us all. We are complicit in it, the Bible says. We have the ability to multiply evil and suffering. Not that the Bible would let us say that every time we suffer, it's our fault in some kind of way. These things, we long to see them more clearly, and maybe we will one day, but for now, everything doesn't fall into neat categories. And yet... Even without all of that answered, those who suffer are not left without a response. I say it's peculiar because in the darkest places of pain, faith still blossoms. Life even flourishes. Psalm 13, it doesn't spiral in despair, but it advances with a big but. I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. Psalm 42 drives through the despair over the course of how many nights we do not know to arrive at this conclusion. I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Though there is no indication that suffering has concluded. Psalm 10 sees, we all see the senseless multiplication of violence and evil, and yet the writer of Psalm 10 still knows God is doing something about it in the unexplained waiting. But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. The same voice who said, where are you, God? You're hiding. Yet you see 
the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and you yourself take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. We know who you are, the helper of the fatherless. Over and over again, these voices emerge from the Christian story, not always to cry and complain and not with answers to just alleviate, alleviate suffering every time, but they announce trust and they express praise and they claim hope in the God who hears the cries of his people, who is present in the darkest places and who is actively bringing his goodness to bear on the baddest situations. Unlike the snappy platitudes suggest, the Bible knows suffering intimately. And rather than explain it all to us, it, it is a story that is told in such a way as to meet us on a common ground and say, granted that there is something terribly wrong in the world, and we all know it, let me show you who God is. Let me show you what God is doing about it so that you might have the strength to respond. And all of that leads in a very particular direction to a very particular place, which is where I'd like to invite us to go for the remainder of our time. All of the scenes and movements and voices of the biblical story come to their climax in Jesus, particularly in Jesus' suffering. There is a cross at the center of the story. Peculiar, I know. But, but we need to behold it for a moment. Now, this will be kind of deep, I suppose, which is the point, really. Yeah, see, the Bible comes to us in a way that says, come sit with me down on the rug for a story. Not so much in a, let me solve this math problem for you, and then we'll have our answer. Again, it's a unique approach. Come sit with me at the cross. No other, religions don't talk about their God suffering and dying, but yet the Bible bids us to come and to allow the suffering of our God to reframe our experience and understanding of suffering and evil and God's relationship to those things. Let's try to do that. Some right now. We could talk about a lot of things. But just follow me right to the center of the story. Jesus Innocent, holy, righteous, a good dude. And at the same time, maker of heaven and earth. All-powerful king of heaven. I don't know who you think you are, but that's who he is. And there he is, hanging on a cross. Gasping. Bleeding. Crying, naked, and alone. A criminal. Nerve pain? Yeah, the spikes were driven right through the median nerve. Jesus knows. This is in a trot. This is grotesque. It's, it's a disaster. Anybody looking can see that. And the Bible doesn't say, look away. It, it says, come further. I know what you see. See it not just from that perspective, but come to a vantage point where you can see what's actually going on. And peeling back the curtain, it reveals that what to the naked eye looks like the execution of a criminal is actually the exaltation of a king. That doesn't make any sense. That's crazy. 
I know. But if you're a Christian, that's what you're saying you believe. Hang with me here. You're saying that the cross is the throne on which this king sits. That, that uh, you know, being dragged through the streets, the mocking and jeering and spitting, you could think of that like a ticker tape parade to the sound of trumpets. That's what's going on here because in the cross and in the empty tomb, God is transforming suffering and defeating evil. That's what's happening here. Again, the point of the Bible is to say that God is doing something about it. And, and, and we didn't expect the story to come this way, right? If we were God, we wouldn't have done it this way, maybe we would say. But nevertheless, this is the biblical story. And it spotlights Jesus who says, see my resurrected body, which is marked by the scars that I still bear. And at the center of it all, it is this atrocity. And you look at that and you say, how could such a bad thing happen to such a good person? And it's not about answering that per se, but it's about, about recognizing that in that event, God, who since time began, has demonstrated his ability to heal and redeem. In this time, on this cross, God is transforming suffering and defeating evil and making all things new. When we ask our questions, the Bible doesn't always meet us with answers, but it does meet us with an invitation to immerse yourself in this story and let its meaning sink in. It doesn't stop there. The response to Jesus' suffering was a Christian community that was born, and they suffered. Suffering was one of their hallmarks. But suffering did not stop their growth and their advancement, and that's because this awful thing that happened to Jesus, through which God was loving the world and transforming suffering and defeating evil and bringing new possibilities to life, through that thing God was doing for Jesus, he is doing now for his people. He is reframing their experience, redeeming their experience of suffering of all kinds, of all of our kinds of suffering. No, it doesn't immediately eliminate it. We still live in a time where there's pain and death exists and innocent people suffer, but the Bible knows about that. Visit Romans 8. Written by a man named Paul who knows what suffering is like. He describes all of creation groaning as like a woman in labor pains. I don't know what that's like. Some of you do. That's what characterizes this whole world, which he says is subject to decay. Yes, we know. We think of car accidents and cancer and death that comes too early. As people living in this world, we suffer. And yet, Paul's conviction I am convinced that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed within us. Future hope, yes, and present help. We don't suffer alone. Paul goes on. The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead helps us in our weakness, intercedes for us, and even groans within us in the depths to sustain us and strengthen us to respond even while we wait for answers. 
God is working for good even in the ugly chaos of our suffering just as he did for Jesus. What God is doing for Jesus, he is doing on the grand scale to create a new heavens and a new earth and all of that comes to bear every time we suffer. Oh, but I don't see it. Oh, my kid's sick. My sister died. I was abused. And the list goes on, and it's so painful. And Paul feels the gravity of that. And yet, even while all of that waits to resolve, he is resolute in saying nothing can stop God's good, redemptive, healing, comforting, loving promises from being realized by you and through you. Just like God wasn't stopped at the cross. Just like Jesus' wounds were transformed. I don't know what it would look like for our wounds to be transformed, for your wounds to be transformed, or the process by which that would happen. But I look at Jesus and I know that it's happening. The Bible doesn't say where evil comes from, but it says that nothing can stop God. No abuse, no injustice, nothing can stop God from defeating evil and eradicating it from the world that he is bringing about, even now, through the groaning of pain. The Bible doesn't say how long we'll have to endure the pain and endure the bad news, but it will not back down from the good news that nothing will stop God even now from being present with those who suffer, from giving them strength in the moment, and even in the darkest, hardest, rockiest places, nothing can stop God from even there bearing the fruit of peace and hope and joy and love. Paul finishes his flourish in Romans 8 by saying, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's going to, shall hardship or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all of these things, what thing? In all of these things, we are more than conquerors, even in our suffering, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. If this was an amen saying church, you would say amen. Amen. When any individual asks why they or someone they love suffers, I don't know why. I, I don't know what to do other than to respond to the Bible's invitation to immerse myself in the story of a God who can and is doing something about it. I would invite you into that story. Romans 8 is a great place to start. And it will bring you to the center of our story where there is a cross. And at that place, God was transforming suffering into glory and defeating evil and ushering in new creation possibilities from the ashes. And that God promises to be present and at work in all suffering and with all people at all times, whether wounded by an abusive mother or an absent mother or suffering under a tyrant or plagued by a disease. 
It is painful. We see kids suffering. We see natural disasters come and sweep through. We see violence on the streets. And the Bible doesn't say exactly why that's happening. It just invites us to meet the God who knows the pain, who is doing something about the pain, and who cannot be stopped, even in the presence of any of those things, from redeeming suffering and transforming it into glory and putting a stop to evil, and even there bringing about tastes of the new creation that he promises is going to come. And it comes through those who commit themselves to the Lord, like Psalm 10 says. God is not just watching. He's not just sitting around. No matter what it looks like, God is providing rescue, comfort, healing, and justice in a way that simply no one else can. The, The story that shapes us does not waver even through all of the ugly stuff. God is our only hope. And the way you get that perspective is by entering the story, finding the strength from being immersed within it, and beholding the cross. It's peculiar, I know. But it is a distinctly Christian response. What I've discovered is that the Christian story provides rich resources for the sufferer. Yes, in the form of strength in the moment and comfort in that place, but also in the form of a narrative about the world that accounts for life's complexities, that makes sense of our intuitions, that gives meaning to our experience and that fulfills our hopes. In light of all of that, you know, coming back to our specific questions today, because I know we were asked specific questions, uh, part of me doesn't know why. How, how could a, a parent abuse their child? And part of me knows exactly why. Because evil lives in me. And I shudder to think that I'm capable of that. Why doesn't God just reach down and stop it? I don't know. I do know that whatever sin wrecks, God is powerful enough and loving enough to redeem. And part of the portrait of God is that God is defined by a patience that is designed to lead everyone to repentance. And how God manages that patience and justice and love for his friends and for his enemies on scales big and small in every situation, I'll just have to wait to know. Why did innocent people die too young? Why do kids lose their parents? I don't know. I do know that God addresses this from the perspective of an innocent victim himself. And he promises never to abandon us in our suffering and that everything a parent is supposed to be is contained within the God who holds out his hands to us all. And finally, uh, after having drunk deeply of the Christian story, as I view the grand scale from a good creation to a new creation with no more pain, 
And as I witness the suffering of faithful individuals, both those in the Bible and those known to me personally, those who have journeyed through suffering and pain to experience God's goodness, to experience God's promises coming true, as I have seen their suffering transformed and I've watched forgiveness bring new possibilities to life, as I've seen marriages restored, I've seen uh, families changing their trajectory, leaders rising from the slums, as I've seen and participated in an imperfect, broken church offering itself for the good of its community to elevate it and care for its needs. When I take all of that into account and when I behold the cross, Well, I guess I just can't agree with the premise that God isn't doing something about evil and suffering. You see, even when we don't have all the answers, by the power of the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, we do have a response. We're going to take a moment to respond right now as a Christian community, wherever you are, by sharing in the meal of communion. If you don't have a communion, the bread and the cup, ushers will be glad to give one to you. If you're at home, I'd be in, uh, get some bread and cup ready. This is a meal that reminds us there is a cross at the center of our story. We are people who experience pain, and we come before a God who experiences pain. And in spite of the defeat and the sin and the suffering that beats us down, we come in faith knowing that our Lord is redeeming suffering and transforming it and defeating evil and forgiving and in that way making us new again. Maybe you have some pain and you're crying out to God right now. This is precisely the moment to do that. And whether you feel God or not, whether you perceive that God is there, may you be strengthened by God's promises that he is ever with you. In Christ, your suffering will be transformed and God will sustain you along the way. Let's behold the cross together as we take the bread and the cup. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for uh, the mercy of your word coming to us, desperately trying to uh, reveal you to us. We, we're down here. We feel alone sometimes. We don't know what's going on. It's chaotic and it's painful. And we wonder, is there, is there more? Is there something going on? Is there any fix to this? And so we turn our eyes to you. We are surprised to see a cross. We are surprised to see an emblem of suffering and to know that you bore it. You were there. You surprised us by entering into the story by bearing our suffering. And God, we are faithful. We, we want the faith to know that you do redeem it. So give us that faith right now as we approach you with these reminders in our hands of bread and cup, your body and blood offered for us. May we offer ourselves to you. And as the psalm says, commit ourselves to the Lord today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.